these are the same strategies that we use in psychotherapy, believe it or not. We do exactly the same thing when, when we work really hard with pe people with trauma, and it works. It just works better when you have something to boost that sense of safety. Their experience through the, through the trial is something like uh, 10 years of therapy in just a few sessions. We stand today. The Business Method the business with method. a shout out. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics for location independence. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring successful entrepreneurs and high-profile people dissecting their business models. We dissect the different methods, tools, and tactics of high-performance online entrepreneurs and high-caliber people in a series format. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs in 100 days that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built location-independent businesses that produce over a million dollars and annual revenue and now we're interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business and influence income results economies and cultures there's a growing number of people building these caliber of businesses like this and we're going to figure out what it takes to make this happen now let's jump in today's show the business method Currently, the psychedelic industry is on the leading edge of helping people with trauma, psychological problems, PTSD, chronic distress, illnesses, empathy, and many other issues related to the mind, body, thought process, and emotions. People are finding that these substances, when used in low doses in a controlled manner prescribed by the right person, are having an astounding effect on healing people, and these studies are coming from legitimate professionals, doctors, and scientists that are also astounded by what they're finding. Today on the show, we have the doctor scientist that is currently working on the largest controlled study for psychedelic substances in the world. His name is Dr. David Rabin. Dr. Rabin is a board-certified psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and inventor, and has been studying the impact of chronic stress on humans for more than 10 years. He has specifically focused his research on the clinical translation of non-invasive therapies that improve mood, focus, sleep, and quality of life in treatment-resistant illnesses. Dr. Rabin has six patent applications pending and more on the way. Dr. Rabin, or Dave, received his MD in medicine and PhD in neuroscientist from Albany Medical College and trained in psychiatry at Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Now, throughout the show, guys, we discuss with Dave the benefits that science is finding with these substances and the healing effects that they deliver. We chat about the many ways that people are healing themselves where traditional therapy and medicine have failed them, how trauma can actually alter the structure of a person's DNA and then can be passed down for up to four generations. And we discuss the future of these therapies and medicines and how his business, Apollo Neuro, is using wearable technologies to help people become the best versions of themselves and heal themselves. On top of that, Dave and Apollo Neuro are offering a 45% discount for their products. 
Now, before we jump into the show, we got to remind you real quick about our upcoming event, Get Shit Done Live in Thailand, October 24th through November 1st. It is a high-performance productivity retreat in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and it will be filled with other established entrepreneurs that are working to move the needle to get to the next level of their business collaborating together and getting a lot of shit done in a little amount of time. Check out the details for that on our website. You can just go to thebusinessmethod.com and then click the link for events and that will pop up. Now back to Dave, we are going to uh, dive into this podcast. You guys, it's really good. Dave is very intelligent and well versed in this study and what he is talking about. So it is on the cusp of what is changing modern medicine as we know it. Let's hop into the podcast. You guys, without further ado, Dr. David Rabin. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Listeners, welcome back to the podcast, and I am excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Dave Rabin. I met Dave on an island in Croatia recently at the Baby Bathwater event, and uh, he was talking about his psychedelic study. He is doing the largest psychedelic study, I believe, in the history of the world, and then also applying what they learned to mental health and uh, creating technology so people can um, master their flow states and how they pe- can be more productive and how they can perform on higher levels and how they can uh, fix their own mental health. I hope I got that all correct, Dr. Dave. Uh, how are you doing? And welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate you having me. And I'm, I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. Did I get everything correct on that introduction? I just want to make sure. Uh, yeah, that was pretty close. It was, it's the largest controlled study of psychedelics. There have been many studies done in the past. So this is the largest controlled study that's conducted in a rigorous scientific way. Can you explain to us, let's just jump right into it. Um, explain to us more about the study and the purpose, why you decided to start it and, and what you guys are finding from it. So the findings uh, won't come back for a few years, so I'll just temper expectations there. Um, But the study just started in 2019. uh, And the reason we started the study is because, uh, really because of the history of how psychedelic medicines have been used traditionally. Um, If you look back in the history of how psilocybin mushrooms and ayahuasca, um, which are two of the oldest, and and, uh, peyote cactus actually, some of the oldest known tribal treatments uh, that have been used medicinally for many years, uh, sometimes thousands of years, what's generally found in common between these treatments is they're all used to treat trauma. And that could be emotional trauma, mental trauma, or physical trauma, uh, but usually of the first two varieties. And so um, we, I, I'm, a, I'm a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, and my background is specifically focused on uh, treating patients who have treatment-resistant PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as treatment-resistant anxiety and depression and substance use disorders. Um, And these disorders typically have a lot in common in that they are very difficult to treat and they're very difficult to achieve what's called sustained remission. Sustained remission being that you you do the treatment that you're given and then that treatment, uh, once you complete that treatment course, that your symptoms go away for an extended period of time. uh, which, re- which would require you to not take, continue to take medicine or not continue, ideally, uh, to require any additional treatment. And 
So what's been, what we've been finding in Western medicine, unfortunately, and particularly psychiatry and the treatment of mental health conditions over the last um, few decades, really, probably since the early 90s, uh, when we started to adopt this more um, biological approach to psychiatry, targeting serotonin levels in the brain with, with uh, medicine uh, like Zoloft and um, Prozac and things like that. Um, and, and of course, there were many before that. But as we started to adopt this uh, concept, we've been starting as not just psychiatrists, but as uh, family practitioners and, and nurse practitioners to prescribe these, com these medicines to many, many more people. And ultimately what's been found, unfortunately, is that uh, many people are turned out to fall into this category called treatment resistant, where they are not responding to the treatment that they're getting, the medicine. Um, and not only that, they're also uh, sustaining significant side effects. And when you really dig down, and this was a really big starting point for me um, to get into this field of psychedelics as an alternative treatment uh, and other alternative treatments um, that are less invasive, was when I really dug down in the statistics, and this is all for the most part publicly available now, uh, when you look at the medicines that we currently use in psychiatry to treat mental health disorders, what we see is that there's a, a higher number needed to treat than the number needed to harm. And those two numbers are possibly the two singular, singularly most important statistics about any medicine or anything you put into your body. That means the number needed to treat means how many people do need to take a medicine in, in the prescribed way to get a positive benefit as, as would be expected. And then the number needed to harm is how many people do I need to treat to start to see side effects. And ultimately what we found, unfortunately, from a lot of uh, medicines for mental illness is that there is a much greater likelihood that if you're treated with one of these medicines, that you will, uh, you will experience harmful side effects before you will experience benefit. And as a, wow. as a provider, as a psychiatrist, that really drove me up a wall because these people that we're working with are already so vulnerable and so stressed out and, and, and really struggling a lot of the time. Um, and we're giving them something that in a lot of times makes them feel worse before it makes them feel better. And so I started looking at other opportunities to, um, for other treatments that could be used in place of uh, the current medicines that had good evidence. And several years ago, I got tuned into the psychedelic space following the work of some folks in England, uh, the Carhartt Harris Group, which is one of the bigger groups in London um, and, and England that is doing some incredible work with uh, brain imaging and, and psilocybin mushrooms. And then also some of the similar work going on in the US uh, and the work that, that uh, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, has been doing with MDMA uh, for treatment-resistant PTSD. And ultimately, what was found in their initial early trials, uh, which have now been expanded significantly, is that psilocybin mushrooms and MDMA in just one to three doses produces rapid and long-lasting symptom remission that, uh, that can last with just three to one to three doses can last for months or years. Wow. And the results that came out of the phase three MDMA study that were released, I believe in 2016, actually showed that five years out, something like 60% of people who had an average of, of diagnosis time of PTSD for 17 years, not responding to treatment, 60% uh, were completely symptom free in uh, five years later with just three doses of medicine. Wow. And so this was you know, dramatically paradigm shifting for me because I said, well, this doesn't really fit into the way that we currently treat medicine in the U.S. Um, 
you know, medicine in the US is we're told we have to, our patients have to take the medicine every single day, ideally at the same time every day to get consistent benefit. And this was showing something different. And what was really interesting was that they showed that, that after, uh, right after the 12 week protocol with MDMA, for instance, that they had like something like a 52% or 54% uh, symptom remission rate. But then a year later, it was 68%. And people continue to get better even without additional treatment because the MDMA and the therapy surrounding that 12 week course uh, worked with the patient to help them recognize this own, their own in, uh, internal ability to heal themselves and to recover and facilitate healing and recovery on their own without relying on anything outside of their bodies. Um, and that essentially is one of the most valuable things that, that I took from, from these, these treatments. And so we ended up partnering with, with MAPS uh, and their MDMA trial now at us with the FDA. Um, and so we, I started a group, a study group with a colleague at Yale and uh, Ben Kalmendi and a colleague at USC, Rael Khan, and, a, and another colleague who's an ayahuasca tribal medicine, plant medicine expert, Joe Tafour, um, to look at the changes to DNA expression patterns in inflammatory and immune and uh, stress and reward response genes that occur with the treatment of these medicines because there is, there's, thanks to Rachel Yehuda's work at, at Sinai um, over the last 15 years, there's been an incredible amount of information that has come out suggesting that trauma is actually passed on through the code that's on our DNA over time. And so if you uh, are traumatized in your life and you don't do anything to resolve that trauma, there's an excellent likelihood that, you, that, that expression patterns that change in your DNA as a result will get passed on to your children for up to four generations, wow. unless that trauma, that traumatic experience is resolved. And this was actually now replicated in mice and it's, it's at least four generations in mice if you traumatize the first generation. And so this is really uh, important for us to recognize because it, it shows us that things that happen to us in our lives now are not just affecting us now and not just affecting us years from now, but they're affecting our, our children and our children's children. And so, so we started this study to look at how different treatments for trauma like MDMA and ayahuasca and psilocybin can induce these rapid um, effects, MDMA being the newest form of treatment for trauma and one of the most successful, ayahuasca and psilocybin being amongst the oldest. And so we're going to do a comparative analysis between the two where we look at how, how the DNA expression patterns change in response to these treatments before and after. Um, and how those correlate with the clinical outcomes that we see in the individuals who go through the treatment. Okay, so I've got a list of questions just from that. Uh, first off, uh, just some some lame it, lame it turns and explanations for our listeners that aren't as uh, versed in uh, this field. So one, when we went on the island, one of the things that I asked you was, or, or this came up maybe in your talk, um, any harmful effects from psychedelics and what you mentioned i believe was that in low enough dosages you guys have found zero harmful effects from psychedelics is that correct so so that's a complicated question okay uh, because there are two major factors in what ultimately results in a positive benefit or a neg a positive experience or a negative experience um, the two factors are dose, which is the first one you mentioned, 
And the second one is what we call context or set and setting. Uh, what is your mindset when you go into the experience and what is the place and the setting in which you have your experience? The best example I can give you is there are, you know, millions of people in the United States who use cannabis for uh, therapy and use cannabis for treatment of their medical conditions and they do so safely without any side effects. Cannabis overwhelmingly is a very, in general, a very safe uh, medicine. However, there are also a, a ton of people who use cannabis in the wrong way. They use the wrong amount of THC in their products. They, or they're anxious coming into the experience or have past trauma coming into the experience. And they will use cannabis and they will have a resurfacing of anxiety and paranoia. And, and we all know this from you know, looking at um, movies over the years that, you know, or shows that display you know, these images of people who are high and, and anxious or paranoid or losing their minds. Um, I think the, the solace in all of this is that it's, it's with, when you do this right, when you, when you medicate properly in the right setting, in the right environment, with the right people around you, and you're taking uh, the right dose of medicine, it is very difficult to have a, a negative experience that, that ends negatively. Could, could negative things come up during the experience as an opportunity to make positive change in your life by addressing them? Sure. But if you're in the right environment and the people with you are able to walk, help you and support you through your experience, then ultimately almost all of these experiences in the therapeutic context have come out positive with no significant adverse reactions and nobody, nobody going down the path that we hear about or have heard about since the 70s where you could take one dose of a medicine and be ruined for life. Um, I think that that said though, um, there are situations where it is unsafe to use psychedelic medicine, uh, and particularly in high doses. And those settings are oftentimes the places where people use them the most in yeah. high doses. And those are things like giant parties and music festivals and raves and things like that. Um, well, they may be well, great and fun for the people there. Uh, you are putting yourself at risk because you don't have control over your setting. And so, it is possible that even with a low dose of something like psilocybin to have a, uh, and Dave Chappelle actually, interestingly, he talks about this in one of his standups that he, you know, took a very low dose of psilocybin one time, was paranoid for what felt like weeks. Um, but then it, but that turned out it was only a day and he felt fine when he woke up and everything was, was, was okay afterwards. But it was a very powerful experience for him that gave him pause. And so I think it's important for all of us to have respect for these medicines and understand that they can be very powerful and healing, but they have to be used in the right way, just like any other thing that we put into our bodies. Yeah, I, I, I love how you put that because it's like, I mean, uh, of course you're going to have a bad experience with psychedelics if you're doing something under a bridge in New York City, you know. <laughs> but if, but I think the bottom line is, which you mentioned, and I, I, I think it's great. It's a great point. Is like you need a controlled environment if you're going to use this, um, and you need to know, you know, have somebody. Uh, the right person to host you, a reputable person, a reputable leader or doctor that knows what they're doing. So that's, that's a good point. And, and I'll go back to like, I used to live in Peru and when we were down in Peru, like there's, there's, um, this whole ayahuasca movement going on. Right. And a lot of people will just come down there as two tourists and travelers and they want to do ayahuasca and, uh, trip their balls off in, the, in the Amazon, you know, and, but what people are doing, there's actual, 
quote unquote, people that call themselves shamans that just stick a feather in their hat and say, hey, I'm a shaman, come to Peru to make money off tourists. And they're really not experienced to do this. And what happens, unfortunately, like um, in 2012, somebody died because they were mixing prescription medicine with ayahuasca. And then the shaman actually buried the kid's body and afterwards. So like, I think like, yeah, and I think like when we explore these things, which are great because on your side of the things, Dave, like you're really healing people, you know, people with PTSD, soldiers that come back from war, people with all these this trauma, uh, you're really healing people. But you need to do this uh, with the right person uh, and you need to know, you know, that person needs to know um, what to prescribe you. I, I want to... Uh, ask you about this because you mentioned I'm actually studying and reading about this now I'm reading a book uh, you are the placebo by dr. Joe Dispenza talking about trauma passed through DNA through generations up to four or maybe more that means like the PTSD that my great 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 grandfather had from whatever war civil war or whatever he fought in could still be ingrained in in my dna and this is what i'm learning from his book also this is this is correct dave yeah it's absolutely correct and it's i think one of the more uh in some ways scary things about what we're learning about trauma but at the same time it's also uh it can be seen as as an opportunity to have a better understanding of how trauma works and what we could do about it. Because I think that for a long time, we just looked at it as, oh, you're messed up. You know, what reason <laughs> do you have to be upset? You haven't had anything bad happen to you in your life. And ultimately, yeah, that might be the case from the surface. But underneath the surface, what we found, and, and again, this is due in large part to Dr. Rachel Yehuda's work, who is a, uh, has a Holocaust survivors in her family, uh, and she noticed the impact of trauma over time on her and her community. Even though uh, many of those folks had been raised in objectively safe environments in the States. And ultimately she decided to go back and, and take do the DNA analysis and look at not the A, C, T, and G DNA code, but actually what the body puts onto that code that tells the code when to turn on and when to turn off and how much. Uh, and so she went back and specifically looked at a number of very important genes and found that, yes, without a doubt, there are changes to certain genes that are caused by trauma, uh, traumatic events and experiences that then are passed on over time that, uh, that appear to be consistent with the increased uh, likelihood of the ancestors of these traumatized folks developing PTSD, anxiety, and depression, which actually tends to be the case. And I think that also plays into metabolic disorder where people who have gone through uh, periods of famine in, in their, their ancestors who have gone through periods of famine are more likely to hoard things and more likely to hoard calories because uh, your metabolic system is thrown off to the point where epigenetically on the DNA, your, your DNA and your body biologically perceives a scarcity of food. And you inherited that as an evolutionary trait to help you cope in case there was actually a scarcity of food, but that may not be the case. And so when there's a surplus of food, your metabolism being low is not helpful, right? And so at those times, it's very important to, to work with people in, ways that we, in the ways that we can to address that trauma so that we can help them in whatever way we can to optimize the performance of their epigenetics, which results in changes in inflammatory immune and stress response gene uh, expression and the way that we use calories and the way that we 
um, you know, regulate our, our general autonomic uh, nervous system functions on a daily basis. And so that's what a lot of these new promising therapies we think are, that's, we think that's how they're addressing uh, these issues and causing these kinds of dramatic effects with just one to three doses. So, uh, again, I want to kind of break this down a bit more for the listeners. So, and I believe what you're saying and what I've, I've learned also, it's like this uh, emotional and mental stress and trauma that we have in our lives can alter the DNA code in our bodies, which then can also be passed down to our children and children's children and children's children. Um, and if we don't take care of that trauma and, and, heal our own selves of that trauma, um, there's a much greater chance then that our, we can pass that down on to the next generation. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And, and, and it's, I think it's important to note, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but um, these studies have been replicated in animals uh, now where they've shown in mice that if you traumatize a baby mouse and then that mouse has children, uh, little baby mouse pups, and that mouse has baby mouse pups, and you go down four generations, it takes four generations minimum to extinguish the markings from that initial trauma. Wow. That's four generations minimum where the subsequent generations are raised in completely safe environments. So it's important to take into account in us that that's, we don't have that privilege where we're raised in completely safe environments ever. And we also live a lot longer than mice. So there's a lot more opportunity for negative experiences to happen. Um, and so, you know, I think four generations is an important number to understand because that's the probably the least amount of time that these that these uh, traumas are sticking with us if they're unresolved. And chances are that they're sticking with us for a lot longer um, in general. Could you explain, Dave, like how that actually do you do you know how that all actually alters the DNA? So I can tell you what I, I can tell you some of what our general theory of understanding is. Um, Basically, when you experience, so you, you've heard the saying, I'm sure, practice makes perfect, right? Yeah. So that saying is a whole lot more applicable to our lives in that when we practice thinking about something, we used to, you know, we, when we were told that, we often just apply it to the acts of doing things. And it also applies to experience. So if you practice, for example, being stressed out for many years, you will get really, really good at being stressed out. And, being, and having your body adapt to being in a hyper-stress state where you are much more likely to react to stress in a, in a way that is not necessarily good or constructive, uh, and you're more likely to respond to things that are not threatening as threatening. Similarly, if you practice activities like meditation and mindfulness and deep breathing, uh, yoga, biofeedback, float tanks, anything that balances your autonomic nervous system towards the parasympathetic side, then you create what from what we can tell, it's called resilience factors. And resilience factors are contribute to your ability to overcome stress and adapt to stress and change more fluidly. And ultimately, you get really, really good as you practice these techniques at accessing the benefits of those techniques in real time or near real time. And the more you practice, the better you get. Um, what's interesting is that Eric Kandel in uh, lead, well, in, over, over the course of the 20th century, but leading up into the 2000s, figured out that the mechanisms of learning and memory occur on a protein level. And the reason that's important, and he actually won the Nobel Prize for this work in 2002, and the reason that that finding was so critically important was because we, prior to Eric Kendall, we really didn't understand how neurons could form a new memory and have that memory persist for our entire lives. And 
there was no, there, there just wasn't a paradigm for it. And so what Eric Handel showed was that the way that we make memories in our brains is exactly or almost exactly the same way that every single other animal that has neurons makes memories, going all the way back to sea snails that have only three or four neurons from 3 million years or 300 million years ago or something like that. And um, what, what he found was that when you, when you uh, these, these neurons, even in the sea snails, the primordial sea snails, respond to three basic stimuli. One of them is, um, one of them is called habituation, which is when you have a neutral stimulus that you're, and, and you're, 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 uh, you and your audience may be very familiar with this from like Pavlovian learning, like Pavlov's dog, which is the, okay. uh, a good example of conditioned learning. So that in that situation, the dog hears a bell and the dog doesn't respond to the bell. It's a neutral stimulus. The bell alone gets tuned out by the dog and it just forgets it's there. All of a sudden, every time you ring the bell, you give the dog food. And the food is a positive stimulus that gives reward. So now every time you ring the bell, the dog go, thinks that there's going to be food and automatically starts salivating in anticipation of food. And then the third response is called sensitization. Sensitization is when you have a very intense stimulus, positive or negative, and then you, uh, it, and it's so powerful. And this, this would be more along the lines of trauma. You have such a powerful, uh, or psychedelic experiences, for instance, or any kind of meaningful spiritual experience that... Uh, when you have, it's a powerful single experience that induces a rapid sensitization in the in the organism, that it learns to respond to that very very quickly and acutely. And so, the best example of of these things we see these things play out in our lives all the time. Um, the best example for sensitization, I said, is trauma and things like powerful, meaning you know meaningful experiences. Habituation would be something like. Uh, not noticing the clothes on your on your body anymore because after you put them on, your body knows it's a neutral stimulus and tunes out the feeling of your clothes. You know they're there, but you don't feel them on your body. And so what happens is as you practice learning things in this way over time, proteins get made in the neural cells that change the way that the cells build connections with one another and change, which is called synap synaptogenesis and the formation of synapses. It's the way that neurons talk. And it also changes the amount of neurons or the amount of neuronal components that are present in a particular pathway in the brain. And if that pathway in the brain is a stress response pathway, then you're going to increase the amount of activity and the amount of smoothness of flow of activity in that part of the brain, the more you practice being stressed out. Similarly, on the resilient side, if you practice uh, resilience and meditative uh, deep breathing uh, strategies for self-help and optimization regularly, then you will train your brain and your body's pathways to more rapid to create tighter connections all along the uh, the stress reduction and the recovery pathway, which increases your ability to more to, to access those states more quickly, but also increases the effect of accessing those states because your body and that's basically building habit. And so what happens down the road from there, and this is the part that we're not 100% sure on yet, because this is what we'll start to determine from some of the studies that we're doing, as well as some of the studies that Dr. Yehuda and other groups are doing around the world, is to actually figure out how changes on that level get to the DNA. Uh, and what we think is happening is that we know that protein expression changes in the, in the neurons and the cells when you're exposed to different stimulus, stimuli from the environment. Uh, and so, and that's how we form memories. So if that's how we form memories, then those proteins are actually, proteins are, are, are the functional, most functional, smallest known component for the most part 
of cells. They're the, they're the components that we call enzymes. Uh, they digest and break down things. They form structure. They build things. They, they are, you know, one of the single most important functional components of the cell. And they make all of, everything about the, what we do in our lives go are, are, are happen because of proteins interacting with one another and interacting with other things in the body. And so there's a the theory that sort of that, that we are putting forward with this large scale trauma is that there is a pathway between forming traumatic memories or alleviating traumatic memories and the epigenetic machinery in the cell. And that when you have a meaningful experience that's positive, that gives you a feeling of safety, whether it's from uh, a psychedelic medicine experience, whether it's from having a great session with a friend where you're sitting and talking and having a great, you know, really, you know, connecting experience or whether it's a music experience uh, or uh, anything like that or an ayahuasca ceremony or whatever, those meaningful experiences are turning on the epigenetic machinery in a certain way. And this is what we're not sure of yet is how, but they're turning on that machinery to facilitate the encoding of new information about that experience. And so, and so we think that when we have positive, meaningful experiences, and there is a, a good amount of evidence to support this, that when we have positive, meaningful experiences, you turn on the epigenetic machinery in such a way that encode changes the, the expression of, of stress response genes to bring them down and the expression of reward response genes to bring them up. And the more positive experiences you have, particularly in situations that used to be threatening or perceived as threatening, then the more you reverse the... Uh, patterning of this epigenetic code. And again, this is something that, we, that is yet to be determined. We will, uh, we will be assessing this in our studies and the studies of others uh, who are going through these different experiences. But uh, this, is, this is, I think, in large part, the, the leading theory at this time. That's incredible. How, so I know you're doing the largest controlled study. How, how large actually is it, Dave? So the study is starting out with about 200 people. Um, these are all, all of the individuals who are in the MAPS MDMA phase three PTSD treatment resistant PTSD trial that's going on worldwide, um, all the subjects who are willing to participate in our protocol where they donate, um, uh, they give a saliva sample before their first MDMA treatment, and then they give another sample at the end of the 12 week uh, to the 12 week experience of treatment. And so those, that's our first group. Uh, and then the second group, we're looking at doing uh, three to 500 folks who have gone through traditional Shipibo ayahuasca ceremony in Peru at a few reliable centers that we found that deliver ayahuasca in a very traditional way that's consistent with the way that it's been delivered for thousands of years. And, um, and then we're also looking at a psilocybin group at NYU that is interested in participating. There's another psilocybin group for uh, OCD at Yale that's interested in participating and another group of Navy SEALs that's also interested in participating. And so we're, we're trying to, we're collecting, the reason it's the largest study well and beyond what anybody else has done to date is because we, we as scientists and doctors have had the, the, the wonderful privilege of being able to, to put our protocol for understanding the mechanism on top of some of these existing protocols that already are in place in the world so that we didn't have to go through this lengthy approval process as we're not administering medicine to people. We're just collecting, asking people if they'll give us uh, information that we can get data from, from their experience that they're going to do anyway. And so it makes it easier for us to be able to collect information from all these different groups. And then, and then that information gets compared in a massive analysis that makes all of the individual samples as, as big or small as they might be much more meaningful 
because they're all trauma treatments that use different medicines in a very similar way. And so we'll be able to, if, if, if the results come back anything similar between MDMA for PTSD, which is the newest treatment of trauma, and ayahuasca uh, in the Shipibo culture, which is the oldest known, one of the oldest known treatments of trauma, then that will shed an enormous amount of light on how these medicines are working because the likelihood is that it's not the medicine. The medicine is a tool that we use to, in, to facilitate a state of healing. That's, that's internally based, that your state of healing is something that you activate with the medicine, uh, similar to activating it, uh, a really great therapist or doctor, you know, or, or really powerful uh, experiences in your life. Um, the, the medicine is a tool and similar to, to the medicine Apollo, right? The Apollo wearable that we're developing is a way to induce a similar effect using vibration uh, delivered to the skin that can rapidly induce these states of calm and safety and change in real time to facilitate the internal healing process. Um, I think what we've seen in Western culture that has created a lot of struggle uh, and, and adversity towards adopting a more, an approach that makes sense in this context is that uh, we are taught that healing has to come from outside of us. And so many of us do not believe anymore that we have the capacity to heal ourselves from within. Um, and so, you know, especially when we're always often prescribed medicine or told we have to go to a doctor, we have to go to the ER or do X, Y, and Z to get better. Um, the Eastern philosophy of medicine talks about how, uh, you know, all of these are tools that can help you, but really what they're doing is they're helping you by activating your internal healing processes within your body. Yeah. I, I think that's especially really cool what you're doing with the technology, um, because you're, you're, you're learning all you can from these tests and then uh, giving people multiple options to to figure out how they want to heal themselves or if they want to just be more productive or whatever they want to do uh, and giving, giving them more options. So it's not limited in the way that even traditional medicine does today limit the amount of uh, substances that they give to their patients based on um, basically what they can uh, give to their their patients um uh so i, w I want to ask you again for for the listeners um i think that you mentioned the three uh substances that you guys are testing is mdma ayahuasca and psilocybin mushrooms is is there anything else dave that you guys are testing as well um so there's another group that's working i mean so we're actually open to working with lots of different substances because okay. we're just collecting samples from individual uh, from from different study groups for the most part. So we're, we've actually been very open and uh, about uh, increasing the amount of uh, of medicines being tested. We're also looking at we're, we're we're ideally also going to start looking at non medicine interventions that induce have been shown to induce similar benefits. So we're going to be uh, trying to study a meditation cohort. Uh, and a, some cohorts of folks who have had PTSD and gone through cognitive behavioral therapy and looking at the differences and similarities there as well. Going back to the psychedelic medicines, we're also looking at, uh, we have a small group that's looking at um, using ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT, which are um, other tribal medicines that have existed for and been used um, by ancient cultures for, for many thousands of years that are now starting to be integrated into Western medicine. Uh, particularly Ibogaine is interesting because it's shown excellent promise for the treatment of opioid uh, dependence disorder. And that's something that's incredibly difficult to treat. And so 
as far as that 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 uh, particular medicine has had a, received a lot of attention recently for uh, helping people get off of successfully get off of opioid narcotics and reduce the morbidity and mortality there, which, as we know, is very serious, and those drugs are very dangerous when and, and addictive uh, when misused in particular. Um, the, the ones that you the that are test that you guys are testing the majority of the time MDMA ayahuasca and psilocybin mushrooms, and could you could you explain a little bit more uh, what exactly they are and then what type of experience or some of the experiences you see in the patients what what they're 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 going through when they're actually using the substance and the result that each one. Uh, that you have seen through your testing uh, has created? That's a big question. Um, okay. <laughs> well, so I, so I, I will say maybe I'll start with the end result and work my way back. Okay. Um, so, the, so the end result, and I think this is what's particularly interesting about all of these substances we're talking about, whether it's, I mean, literally any of the psychedelic medicines that have been mentioned on this, on this, uh, this time we've been talking fall into this category, which is, that people feel radical self-acceptance and radical non-judgment and an opportunity where they feel, basically, they feel safe enough to recognize opportunities for change that are meaningful and to see those opportunities for what they are and actually act on them. And in a lot of ways, the issue with, with why that's so difficult is because when you are stressed over, t- over time or, or whether, you know, if you have, if you just have, uh, if you're just chronically stressed out or, or mentally or physically ill, it becomes very difficult for you to embrace change because change can, is, is just another scary thing that you have to deal with and you don't know what's going to come. And so when people feel safe and that, and, and that fear of change also happens with just challenging yourself to, to, go back and re-experience a past trauma, knowing that you have to go back and nobody in their right mind typically wants to go back and re-experience a traumatic event. But when you realize that when you go back and re-experience that event from a context of safety, that it dramatically changes the way you perceive that event, it dramatically changes the way that you perceive the impact of that event on yourself, who is at fault, uh, who, what could have been done, who is to blame, uh, you know, who should feel guilty, and all this other stuff that gets associated with the experience, um, you start, what you start, you, you automatically following these experiences, we all, we all naturally have a tendency to start thinking about the experiences this way. And we see this all the time. And nobody is really immune to, to this. Uh, it's something that all of us have to constantly work on to try to be good at, at, at grieving and, and managing traumatic experiences. And so what, what these medicines do is they provide you with this, they provide the individual, the, the subject, with a, a unique experience that is, is you know, curated by the therapist, obviously, um, who uh, spend a lot of time prepping, prepping the individual for the experience and also making sure that they have a plan for what they want to work on during the experience, but then they really create this environment that's focused predominantly on safety. Um, and, and that's what people end up reporting. They end up reporting that they feel radically safe, uh, radically self-accepting, non-judgmental, um, and able and compassionate to themselves, loving of themselves, loving of, of people around them. And they feel this, this significant interconnectivity between themselves and everything else around them, which is something that 
some people have experienced and other people have not. And, um, but it is safe to say that most people have experienced it at some time when they were children. And with MDMA in particular, one of the most common ways to describe the experience is as child's eyes. It's the way you saw yourself in the world when you were a child before you realized that anything bad was happening around you. And so these experiences, what, what, they, allow, what they give in general, what they give people the opportunity for is to, in the context of radical safety and self-acceptance, go back and, and re-experience component pieces or whole of your traumatic experience, not necessarily as the person in it, but maybe sometimes even as somebody watching yourself go through it, watching your memory uh, of you going through that experience almost as a third party. And when you see that and you have that experience in the context of safety, what it does is it resets the way that you perceive that experience and the way that that experience connects to your identity. It becomes something that just happened to you in your life that you did the best you could to overcome knowing what you knew at the time rather than something that defines you as a person for the rest of your life. And so, um, and so what these medicines do is they, they create this context of safety in conjunction with the therapist to facilitate these opportunities for people to, to safely reappraise and reconsolidate these fearful responses that they've practiced having in the, in the case of the MAP study for over 17 years on average. And even though it's been over 17 years, which is one to three doses, these folks are having dramatic experiences that they are able to go back and, and realize that it's not my fault that this happened to me. You know, it's not, I, I've been holding on to this blame of uh, blaming myself for years and years and years about something that happened to me or something that happened to somebody around me or survivor guilt, like by blaming myself for surviving in the case of a lot of military vets uh, when, when their colleagues, uh, you know, ended up not making it. And that's something that they carry with them for the rest of their lives, blaming themselves. Um, and so a lot of this is, is, is really focused. And this is the same, these are the same strategies that we use in psychotherapy, believe it or not. We do exactly the same thing when, when we work really hard with pe people with trauma and it works. It just works better when you have something to boost that sense of safety in the person and really help them to make, it's like a, it's like a catalyst, if, if you will, uh, to therapeutic experience. Some people, particularly with ayahuasca and psilocybin, will say, and even in their experience through the, through the trial, is something like uh, 10 years of therapy in just a few sessions or just one session. And so it's really, a, 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 the sa it induces safety for an, and a, my, a brain state change to catalyze this therapeutic experience. Um, and we can go more into the way that that actually affects your like cognitive processing and that kind of thing if you want, but I'll stop there for now. <laughs> no, I, that's a great explanation. Most people walking around do not realize how much emotional trauma that they're carrying, even if they are a healthy, successful, look like a well-rounded, you know, put together person. Um, like we have, uh, we can, you mentioned, you know, we were talking about war, but also as children and infants, like we can pick up trauma from the way that our parents or the environment is uh, that we're growing up in and not realize that we have that. And what's great about, you know, 
this emotional, this, this shift of people realizing that emotional health, mental health is really important is because we're on this shift and like your studies are a, a cusp of helping people understand that it is okay to not be uh, mentally healthy or emotionally healthy and to find help for it. And this is a, another perfect example of how you can do that. And the studies are showing that if you have emotional trauma and uh, you have used therapy and it hasn't worked and used other ways and it hasn't worked, then this is another option to open the door for, for, for people to experiment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the single biggest thing that we could, I think is important to send people away with, which is that you know, there's, there's always hope and there are always things out there that can help us to improve. And, um, and that I think one of the other important things that you actually reminded me of when you were just talking was that uh, the way that we look at, at, at failure and the way that we look at mistakes in our lives, the way that we look at bad things that have happened to us or challenges is critical to how we cope uh, and to how resilient and how strong we become. You know, like, uh, a, a lot of the time, especially in Western culture, we've adopted this way of thinking about challenge as why me, right? You see all these people on TV and around you who seem like they have life so good and so easy and they don't have to do anything and they can go out and party all the time. Why do I have to face these challenges endlessly, right? And it's, it's like this why me attitude. And what, what that's missing is what Nietzsche and Obi-Wan Kenobi said so, so well, which is that what does not kill us makes us stronger. And that is not referring to physical injury. It's referring to, to challenge. It's referring to mental and emotional and spiritual and physical challenges. The things that push us and challenge us are exactly the things that we need to help us learn and grow as people to be the best and strongest versions of ourselves that we can become. Without those challenges, you, don't, you aren't forced to learn anything. And we see that all the time. And so it's, it's critical to change the way that we look at failure and the way we look at challenge as something that we welcome into our lives, as something that is there for a reason to help us grow and, and help us find ourselves and help us find the, the best version of ourselves that we can be, because frankly, we may not know what that is yet unless we're challenged to find it. Mm, good point. I'm curious, like I've done a lot of, of psychotherapy, self-development throughout the years, a lot of meditation. Currently I'm meditating, you know, an hour a day, Monday through Friday. And I love these sort of practices because I think they, they, me personally, they've really helped me grow as a human, become a better human, but also understand my internal, um, radar to, to kind of say, okay, uh, your emotions are off, Chris, you're experiencing this mental stress or this trauma, this drama in your life because you're not balanced. What is going on? And so for me, um, methods like psychotherapy and meditation have worked really, really well to help understand myself and help heal myself in different situations that have come up for me. Um, I've never done traditional therapy other than like talking to good friends about problems or challenges that are going in my life or whatever. But, um, have you guys, and, and I know when we talked, um, when we met Dave, 
that you mentioned that meditation is is producing um, the exact same or similar effects for people that are using psychedelics to help heal themselves uh, can also use meditation to their gut. But have you compared that to like traditional psychotherapy or therapy and, and meditation with the the psychedelic testing that you guys are doing? So we will be doing some comparative analysis, looking at large large groups of patients who have gone through meditation or traditional therapy and comparing to psychedelics, we will have the opportunity to look at those folks uh, and, you know, actually give you some real answers to that uh, over the course of the next few years. But I, I think that we, we know, uh, we, we have a good idea of what the answer is going to be because we know that we've seen in, not only in literature, especially over the last 30 years or so, but also, uh, you know, just clinically and, and in our general observations of people, we see that people are able to um, self-heal using mindfulness and meditation. And this is something that's not new. It's really possibly the oldest form of medicine known because it doesn't require anything outside of us to, to achieve. And so I think that we will ultimately see that there are dramatic similarities between uh, these different treatment outcomes. I think what we will also see is that it's a matter of, of time and that time, the time factor is really important. You know, if you have somebody and, and, and also access, if you have somebody who's already severely mentally ill, the chances that you're going to be able to train that person to meditate or more appropriately that you, that they will be able to train themselves with your guidance to meditate uh, every day and to control their symptoms of meditation is extremely slim. Not because they don't have the capacity to do it, but because they've been practicing being in the opposite of, basically the opposite of a meditative state for so long that their body is, is deconditioned to what it's like to be in a meditative state. And so um, it requires a little bit of help remembering what, it's, what those states are like so that you can then Look, teach yourself to access them again yourself. And so, you know, I think there's, there's different, different groups of people will be better suited for different treatments. For example, people there, you know, children and elderly people and, and pregnant women are not the best suited for psychedelics for obvious reasons. They're not good medication candidates in general, but that's why we developed Apollo was because Apollo in a lot of ways can provide very similar benefits like uh, helping people meditate in, near or reach meditative states very, very quickly or access the benefits of meditation on the go with a wearable without you having to spend the thousands of hours to learn how to do it or take a, take a medicine or a psychedelic. And so um, there are techniques now that we're finding as we learn more about the mechanism of how all of these different states work in the body and why they're important. We're starting to learn new ways to help people access them. Uh, most traditionally, I think, and, and why spread was music. You know, music is in a lot of ways like a shared meditative state that we all experience when we go to a concert with our favorite artist or when we go into a, uh, you know, a, an intimate live show setting at like a jazz club or, or something well curated like that where everybody's tuned in to the musician at the same or the artist at the same time and everybody's attention is just honed in and focused on what's coming out of that person and their instrument or the, or the group of people. And that, in a lot of ways, is a group meditative experience that's giving you some of the same benefits as the things we've been talking about. 
Yeah, that's really cool. I, I'd, I'd love to talk more, Dave, about your uh, Apollo and the wearable technology and the things that you, you guys are finding. So you, you're taking, um, you know, your studies and the psychedelic studies and the information that you know about neuroscience and in human performance and creating technology that people can wear around and based on their behavior and their emotional state and their mental state they can or meditative state or wherever that whatever they're doing uh, they can see how they operate and and also use that to get into different states of mind to help either heal themselves to perform better to um to to be more focused um could you tell us more about apollo and the the things that you guys are launching here coming soon Absolutely. Uh, and, and so basically, in short, what Apollo is, is it's the first wearable technology that increases focus, uh, calm, and uh, access to meditative states using a gentle, specific, very specific gentle layered vibration frequencies that we developed in the lab at the University of Lincoln. And ultimately, what the way we developed Apollo was because I was seeing these profound effects in, in my patients when uh, they felt safe in in my office, and we were working together. And also similar effects in um, the people going through MDMA and psilocybin trials. And those effects were so dramatic and so closely tied to safety that I said, "Okay, you know, my patients are telling me that they can't practice the things I'm working on outside of the outside of the office because they don't feel safe. So, what can we create using modern wearable technology to give them when they leave the office so that?" They can continue to feel like they're supported on the go. Um, and ultimately, that turned into the research, uh, an enormous amount of research into the different sensory systems, like I think some of the things we're talking about, sound therapy and sound healing, biofeedback, float tanks, meditation, mindfulness, et cetera. And then also things like touch. Um, and touch stood out, this, the whole touch sensory system stood out as something exquisitely important. Because when you look back evolutionarily at pretty much all mammals, mammals will touch each other to convey safety. It is the quickest and fastest way that we convey safety to one another. And so I, I, noticing that and noticing that in general, particularly in the United States and Western cultures, we have a deficit of touch, particularly if you're mentally ill, uh, unfortunately. And you know what would happen if we were, if we created something that took the the frequencies in music that make you feel that help you feel calm and and relaxed, or help you fall asleep, or help you be more focused, or have more energy, and we took those the core elements of those frequencies and then brought them down to a level where you couldn't hear the frequencies, but you could feel them, so that you could wear them all the time without occupying your ears. Would that cause the body to change into a state that was more adaptive to change by targeting safety pathways in skin, the same safety pathways that would be targeted when somebody you like holds your hand on a bad day. And so we, we went through that process and we uh, evaluated our literature and finally we came to a conclusion on several frequencies that seemed to be the most likely to have this effect based on a combination of work from biofeedback literature and a combination of literature, uh, meditation literature and music literature and these things and neuroscience. And we put all this together and we started playing with these frequencies and delivering to the body in our early prototypes. And it turned out that without a doubt, people just said they felt better within minutes. And so we said, okay, well, we've only tried this on our friends and family and our lab colleagues so far. So let's actually put this to the test in a double blind randomized placebo controlled clinical trial at the university. And we did so in uh, 2016, 2017. 
And we show that without a doubt, when we send these frequencies to your body, even if you have no idea what those frequencies are or what they're supposed to do, we see reliable improvements in things like heart rate variability, which is a sign of resilience in the nervous system. Uh, we see heart rate variability go up uh, reliably in most people. And we also see heart, uh, that, that people feel more calm. And, within, and this is all within three minutes. And that most interestingly, as heart rate variability goes up, they perform better under stress proportionate to how much it goes up. So the calmer that you feel in the state of stress and the, and the, and the calmer that your body appears in the state of stress, the better you perform under stress. And this is something that intuitively we've understood reasonably well, particularly from the studies of flow states, which are sort of characterized as these states of optimal uh, excitement or arousal, but also optimal calm. Um, there is this notion that you want to be, you want to be stressed, but you want to a point where you perform at your peak, but then you also want to be calm in that setting of stress. You don't want to be worried or overthinking what you're doing. And so ultimately we showed that in a very well-validated clinical trial task uh, that the ast that astronauts typically give to, typically give to, uh, the, sorry, that NASA gives to astronauts before they go into space to test utility responses. And it's a very, very difficult task. It's hard to improve performance on. And we show that without a doubt, we're improving performance on this task. And it appears to be because we're inducing flow states by helping people be more present in their bodies. And so that was the first trial that ultimately led to uh, the subsequent funding and then commercialization of the project by uh, actually my wife, Catherine Fantasi, who is the, the business and, and business execution side of our, uh, of our uh, duo. And so um, she has been successfully commercializing the technology since about 2017. How cool. Where do you see all of this going in the next decade? What do you, what's your predictions? I know that technology is just rapidly changing over the past five years. Like even five years ago, we really weren't having conversations like this, which is um, pretty incredible. So I'm curious, like what's your prediction for um, society with psychedelics and wearable technologies that help you get into flow states and be more calm and operate better and have better, better mental and emotional health? What's your, what's your thoughts over the next 10 years? Uh, that's a really good question. I think, I think the first thing that is the most dramatic difference between the way things are now in te technology wise compared to the way things were 30 years ago is wearable sensors. Wearable sensors and mobile phones, which also have wearable sensors in them, uh, have now gradually over time become more and more accurate and are able to, through, through, and it, it creates an opportunity for us to do something that we could never do before, in, in, particularly in medicine, which is track what's happening to somebody throughout their entire lives. Now you can give somebody a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or an Oura Ring or uh, any number of other devices um, and, or, or even just through the activity of their mobile phone, if, they're, if they use their phone a lot, you can get a really good sense of how mentally and emotionally and uh, physically healthy that person is by tracking that data over time. And um, so that is the single, I would say that is arguably the single biggest uh, advent in technology that is shifting the way that we practice medicine. Because now, like, I mean, before, when a patient came to the office, your only input into how that patient had been doing in the last three months since you saw them before was what they tell you that week that they come into the, you know, what happened that week. And most patients typically only recall that week and maybe a couple significant events from before 
Um, but typically, what you hear is about things that day and that week. Um, and so you miss most of how people are doing. And so wearable technology now creates this opportunity to, to track this data over time and actually use it in a way that, that can significantly benefit the way we provide care to patients by understanding much, much better about how people are feeling. To some extent, understanding even better about how they're feeling than they do um, in some cases. And so, uh, what, so, so wearable technology is critical and particularly the sensors. The sensors at present, I will say, are not very accurate. And so over time, what I, over the next few years, and particularly the next 10 years, what we'll see is that the accuracy and the sensitivity of these, uh, of these wearable sensors is gonna get dramatically better. And that's gonna increase the data integrity and, and the quality of what we're looking at to give us much better uh, insights into what we can do to live better lives. Um, but additionally, we will start to also see data security start to change. Um, right now, most of the wearables that are out there do not have substantial data security. Uh, and, and the problem with that is that the data can't go into your medical record. And so if you are collecting data with a wearable and you want your doctor to see that data, you basically just have to print it out and send it to them, but they may not even look at it because it's not technically HIPAA compliant and it may not even make it into your chart. Um, hopefully it will, but in the future, you know, over the next 10 years, I think what we'll see is that the data from your wearable, uh, from your wearable sensors will actually go in your phone from what you will allow when you give it permission will securely be transferred in a HIPAA compliant way from your, your devices directly into the electronic medical record cloud or whatever it is such that when your doctor sees you, he already, before your doctor sees you, he already knows if you actually need to be there or not and knows what to recommend before you come in to optimize your life. And so it starts to streamline the medical process a bit and also provide us with insights where we can start to predict when people are going to be sick before they actually start developing symptoms. And there's lots oh, wow. of ways that we can do that. Um, just as one example, this really interesting paper came out uh, last couple of years that showed that we can tell pretty accurately how upset you are based on how, how, uh, how, uh, what force you tap your cell phone screen with, which makes sense, right? And so these are all metrics that were in the past lost, but now they are things that we're starting to recognize are actually very telling. And so what that leads into is sort of the future of customizing personal therapy, um, where everybody can get not a standard out-of-the-box pill that your doctor says, oh, you meet diagnostic criteria for ADHD, so I'm just going to prescribe you the first thing on the list, or the thing that the pharmaceutical company told me to prescribe you, uh, I'm going to actually look at your data and see what things in your life you can change on your own to improve your outcomes, and then we'll talk about medicine. But right now, it's very difficult to do that because we just don't have the data uh, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the organized data to do it in a, in a very you know, delicate and thoughtful way. Um, over time, <laughs> these, these treatments will get much more personalized, and hopefully... Hopefully, people will actually be less dependent on the healthcare system because through data analytics, we'll be able to provide more care to people from the comfort of their home rather than having to come into the ER doctor just to get um, audience with a, with a physician or a caregiver. Oh, don't tell the insurance companies that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I can I can totally see you know uh, somebody getting angry because uh, Amazon buy button is not working and then your wearable starts vibrating in a certain way or you get a message from Alexa that says that starts playing really calming music to soothe you while you shop on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, one of one of many applications. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Dave, real quick before we wrap things up, I'm just kind of curious. Uh, what's your daily routine like? Uh, do you do you have daily meditation? Uh, what are you doing on a regular basis to keep um, your mind healthy and sound, and your body uh, so you can focus and and keep your studies going and and be a, a high performer? That's a that's also a good question. I I was not always as healthy as I am now. Um, mainly because of the toll of medical school and residency, which took me from a, a very physically active individual to somebody who no longer had time to exercise regularly anymore, uh, which I'm still recovering from. Uh, but I've been gradually reintegrating physical activity into my life on a regular basis, and that, of course, is incredibly important. It's one of the best ways that we can get anxious or restless energy out of our, out of our uh, minds and our bodies and just out so that we can start to uh, gain some perspective and on, on what's going on in our lives. And so physical activity, I think, is not to be discredited. It is incredibly important and probably one of the major things that we should focus on on a regular basis. Um, the, uh, but, uh, but in addition, I think there's a couple things that I, that I do that are very helpful. Um, I do, I do you know, try to eat healthy. I try to eat all organic, not processed foods and things that don't have stuffed chemicals in them that I don't know what they are. And, and uh, I try, I actually, we do a lot of our own cooking. Um, I love, I, my wife and I love cooking and we uh, have that as an activity that we very much enjoy together. And it also makes us more invested in our food and what we eat. Um, and, uh, and we also cook for others too, which is, is fun. And uh, a very therapeutic activity for us. And I would say that uh, meditation is very important. I, I don't meditate the same way that you do, which is not a, a problem. Everybody meditates in their own way. And, and meditation is really a practice that trains our bodies to be able to access these states of balance more effectively. Um, but I think I, I had an interaction with a monk, uh, a Tibetan monk, who was actually, who worked with Steve Jobs uh, before he died. And he gave me some very interesting um, insight into meditation, which was that, you know, we oftentimes take time out of our, out of our day to meditate and that's good. And it's good to do that, to practice meditating and practice, you know, entering these states. But if we're relying on taking time out of med uh, out of our present lives to meditate, then we're not truly integrating what we're supposed to be learning from meditation into our lives, which is that we should be as present as possible as often as possible. And meditation as a, as a training tool teaches us how to be as present as possible as often as possible. Meaning that you don't, um, that, that it's, you know, taking time out of the present to go do things is great, but if you can be here and now as much of the time as possible, then you're getting the same benefits of meditation, but you're getting them throughout your day and your entire rest of your life. And one of the ways that I think I really got into the state of being able to, to do that and to sort of, and, and to carry that presentness with me wherever I go is an ancient Shipibo and uh, 
uh, practice, which is also a Buddhist practice and a Hindu practice, which is the four pillars, which are gratitude, self-gratitude, gratitude for yourself and where you have gotten in your life, forgiveness of yourself and for anything that you might have done wrong, understanding that mistakes are critical as opportunities to learn, um, self-compassion as being an opportunity for us to recognize that we will make mistakes in the future and we need to be compassionate for ourselves and understand that this is a learning process and the process has to be embraced for us to be able to get the most out of it, not just the end goal. Uh, and then self-love and the four together, gratitude, forgiveness, compassion, self-love, if you practice them every day, which for me just starts with writing them down in the morning on a piece of paper and trying to think about things that, that resonate with those words. Um, and that's really all you need to do to start. It's very minimal, but just doing that keeps those things in your mind throughout the day. And so that when you are in a situation where maybe you're not being that forgiving or grateful or compassionate or loving of yourself or others, you, you are forced to remember the things that you woke up to in the morning and say, Hey, wait a minute, maybe I should, uh, think about this as an opportunity to be more grateful or an opportunity to be more compassionate. And that has been a practice that in just in terms of the, the yield of, of positive, positive uh, benefit that I've gotten from something so minimal, that is probably one of the simplest practices that I've gotten the most benefit from that helped me set the stage for um, enhancing my meditative practice throughout my day to day. I love it, man. That's an incredibly healthy practice for sure. I think, Dave, we're going to wrap everything up there. I uh, want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing all of your wisdom with us. I really appreciate it. I think this is great information that can really help um, make the world be a more healthy, happy, loving place, which is uh, what we need for sure. And uh, yeah, just thank you so much, my friend. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you have going on, uh, where's the best place they could do that at? Uh, again, thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure and it's, it's uh, great to be able to have the opportunity to talk about this kind of work uh, with, with you and, uh, and be able to share this with your audience because uh, I think, you know, as, as you know, uh, this, is, this is the kind of stuff that's just not talked about enough and the more people that know about it, the better. Um, the best places to reach me and I'm happy to answer any questions or, or connect with anybody who would like to learn more about any of this work uh, is the uh, apolloneuro.com or apolloneuroscience.com. And you can send us an email through the website or sign up for, uh, to be part of our pre-order um, uh, campaign. And you can also reach me on social media. Uh, best place is probably Twitter at Dave Raven. Excellent. And, and I'm signed up on your list to, uh, to, to hear when the, the technology comes out. I think that'll be my Christmas present this year. I want to be a, I want to be a tester for sure. <laughs> We'd love to have you. Um, Dave, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll wrap up there. I want to thank you listeners for tuning in once again, and we'll see you guys on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.